I'm going to, I'm probably going to get into a little bit of Genesis and a little bit of Hebrews, and we're going to move around a little bit today as we conclude this uh, fourth chapter of Romans, but if you'll, you'll, you'll start right there, you'll be in a good place to get things going. Amen. So this morning, we are continuing in our expository study through the book of Romans. We're wrapping up uh, Romans chapter 4. We're wrapping up a section where Paul has focused on the nature of Abraham's faith. This is our third week in a row on this particular section of Scripture. And we started back with verse 17 of chapter 4 where Paul established the object of Abraham's faith. He he said that Abraham believed on this God who quickens the dead. He's that God that, that speaks to dead things and makes them live again. Amen. That was the basis of his faith. It was placed in that God who speaks to the dead and makes it live again, who speaks of those things which are not as though they already were. That's the God that Abraham believed in. So after establishing that foundation, Paul begins to define the faith of Abraham. When Abraham was beyond hope, he said, he still believed in hope. Amen. When he was past the, 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 the status or the condition where his hope could ever be fulfilled, when he was out in the realm of impossible, when it was beyond any ability for his hope to become realized, still he believed in hope. And he did so because his hope was founded on the Word of God. And he simply believed that God would do what God said he would do. Amen. And then he, he said he was not weak in the faith. He staggered not through unbelief. And we talked about some of that last week. Abraham had his moments of weakness. Abraham had his moments where he was less than perfect. But when Paul looks at his life through the lens of, of the long view and sees him uh, all these years later as he's writing the book of Romans, he wants to reiterate the fact that through it all, Abraham's faith never gave way to unbelief. He, he was never weak in the faith. He, he made some mistakes. Yes, I make some mistakes. You make some mistakes. None of us are perfect, but he was never weak in the faith. As a matter of fact, he goes on to make the point that all of the troubles and trials of his life made him stronger in his faith. Amen. And so finally we come to the last passage of the chapter, beginning in verse 21. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed, imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. We'll begin in that 21st verse, and I'm going to read it again. It says, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. So Abraham was fully persuaded that God would keep his word. He believed that God could and that God would keep his promises. For Abraham, everything rested on the promise of God. There's an old saying that behind every promise 
lies the character of the person who made the promise. In other words, if you're going to hang your hopes and your dreams on a promise, then you must trust the character of the person who made the promise. There are some people that can make me a promise, and I know I can take it to the bank because I know their character. I know that if they said they're going to do it, then they're going to do it. It's it Come hell or high water, they're going to get it done. But there are some people that if they make me a promise, you know, I might need to sit back and wait and see because I've seen promises they made in the past and and I've seen that the follow-through isn't always there and and they aren't always faithful and sometimes uh, their their mouth writes a check that they can't cash. They say they're going to do something, but they're really not going to follow through on it. So whenever Paul says that Abraham believed in the promise, where he put his hope and his faith in, in the fact that God was able to do what he said he would do, he's making a statement as to the character of God. Paul believed in Abraham, believed that God was able to do what God said that he would do. you got to believe. If you're going to put your hope in a promise, you got to believe that the person who made the promise has the power to keep the promise. They've got the ability to do it, and they have the will to do it. Some people have the ability but don't have the will. Some people have the will but don't have the ability. But if you're going to believe in a promise, you've got to believe they have the ability and the will. And Abraham was fully persuaded not only that God could keep his promise, that he had the ability because of his great power, but that he would keep his promise, that he had the will because of his faithfulness. Sometimes we don't struggle to believe that God can meet our needs. Sometimes we don't struggle to believe that God can work a miracle. Sometimes we simply struggle to believe that he will. You've got to believe not only that God can, you got to believe that I've seen sinners come to an altar and repent of their sins and go back and come continually over and over and over. They can't seem to find forgiveness of sins. They can't seem to get past that place of repentance. Is there a shortcoming in God? No, there's not. There's a shortcoming in their belief that God will do what they know he's able to do. They come to an altar and they pray for repentance. They know God's able, but somehow they believed a lie of hell that God won't because they've gone too far or they've done too much. Amen. You've got to believe not only that he is able, but that he will. And so Abraham believes in the promise of God because he believes both in the power of God, the power that is able to raise the dead. The power that's able to speak to dead things and cause them to live again. And he also believes in that power that is able to create something from nothing. That was the basis back in in verse 17. Likewise, he believes in the promises of God because he believes in the faithfulness of God. He believes that God will do what he says he will do, that his word will never return to him void, that he can speak of things that are not, as if they were, because he will bring them to pass. So if we're going to be saved by our faith, then our faith must be in God. And we, like Abraham, must believe that he is able and that he is faithful to keep his word. The hope of our salvation lies on the promise of God. 
and we're called to trust completely in that promise, to be fully persuaded that what God has promised, he is able to perform. Amen? So verse 22 says, And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now once again, we said this several times through this study in the book of Romans. Every time Paul makes this reference, he's, he's referring to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16. He's pointing out that God counted Abraham as righteous because he had the kind of faith that has been described to us in the past few verses. The kind of faith that we've been talking about. Abraham's faith is the focus of this passage. And several things then have become clear to us about Abraham's faith. First of all, Abraham's faith was more than just mental assent. Abraham's faith was a strong, steadfast faith in God that caused him to trust and obey God's word under all circumstances. Abraham's faith was more than just a thought, well, I believe that God can, but it was a faith that resulted in obedience. Abraham acted on his faith. He did something with his faith. And secondly, his faith was more than just a one-time confession that guaranteed unconditional eternal security for the rest of his life. It was a constant, continual faith that caused him to wait patiently without wavering until God's promise came to pass. It was a Faith that required continual, ongoing obedience from him. That's what we see in the record of Abraham's life. That's what we see in the Genesis account. That for the remainder of his life, Abraham was obedient to his faith. Brother Dennis, if you don't mind, put Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8 on the screen behind me. Hebrews 11 and 8. I want to focus on the first portion of that, that verse for just a minute. The first portion says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. I'm going to stop right there. If you take that first portion of that verse, By faith, Abraham, if you take out the explanatory statement between the commas, which simply describes the place of his calling and and the calling that he received. If you just boil it down and simplify the sentence to the verbs and the objects of those verbs, by faith it says, Abraham obeyed. By faith. When he was called to go out in a place which he should have received for an inheritance, by faith, Abraham obeyed. When we study the Genesis account, that Paul is using to establish his doctrine, we quickly find out that it is impossible to separate Abraham's faith on the one hand from his obedience on the other. We know that Abraham believed because he obeyed. We know that Abraham took God at his word and settled it in his heart because of what Abraham did with the word of God. We can't find any instance anywhere in Scripture of Abraham or anybody else believing but not obeying. It's not there. Faith and obedience are inseparably linked. Let me explain what that means. 
Nowhere in the pages of the Bible can we find anything to substantiate the idea that God justified Abraham on the basis of mental faith alone without an obedient response to the word of God. Abraham didn't just believe in God and continue living in Ur. Abraham didn't just believe in God then go on about his life as normal. But when Abraham believed in God, when he believed in God's word, he obeyed God's word, and we know that he believed because he obeyed. Some teachers recite these references in Romans to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16 as evidence that mere mental assent is all that is required for salvation. They will declare to you that all you have to do is believe without any reaction to the word of God. And you're saved just like Abraham was saved. But that isn't what Paul has said here. What Paul has said here is that all you have to do is believe just like Abraham believed. And then you will be saved just like Abraham was saved. And Abraham didn't believe with a mere mental assent. Abraham didn't believe with just a, a thought in his mind that didn't show up anywhere in his actions. Abraham's faith compelled him to obedience. Therein lies the key to the doctrine of justification by faith. Faith and obedience are inseparably linked. David K. Bernard said, the Bible does not record that God justified Abraham on the basis of a mental attitude without an obedient response to God's word. To the contrary, the Bible records Abraham's justification by faith after he fully obeyed God's command to leave his country and his kindred in Genesis chapter 12 and fully believe God's promise to make of him a great nation in Genesis chapter 12. He goes on to state that the passage in Genesis 15 that describes Abraham's justification by faith comes after he left Ur in Genesis 12, after he entered Canaan in Genesis 13, and after he separated himself from Lot in Genesis 13. Abraham's faith was demonstrated by his obedience. And God fulfilled his promise to Abraham because Abraham obeyed him. That's what the Word of God says. Brother Dennis, Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18. Genesis 22 and 18. God told Abraham there, he said, And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Why? Because thou hast obeyed my voice. Genesis chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, beginning in verse 4. Later, God reiterates to Isaac the same promise that he made to Abraham. This is the way he says it. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Verse 5. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. You don't get faith in Abraham without obedience. 
Now let's consider those two passages along with Genesis 15 and 6, which says that Abraham was justified by his faith. Genesis 22 and 18 said that God kept his promise to him because he obeyed. Genesis 26 and 5 says that God blessed his lineage according to that promise because Abraham obeyed. That second passage goes as far as to say that that obedience means that he kept God's charge, he kept God's commandments, he kept God's statutes, he kept God's laws. Okay. So we just spent 23 previous lessons establishing that a man is not saved by his works. Establishing that a man is not saved by keeping the law. Rather, he is saved by his faith. But here we see a real-world example of Abraham's faith. And the real-world example is that in his faith, he obeyed God. And when he obeyed God, he kept the law of God. He obeyed God's commandments. He obeyed God's statutes. He obeyed God's charge. He obeyed God's law. Now, if you see faith and obedience as being two separate things, then you have a problem. Because Paul is explicit that Abraham was not saved by his works. But the Genesis account is clearly defining the fact that Abraham's obedience was the grounds upon which God established his promise to Abraham and his seed. The only way you reconcile these verses with the account in Romans is to recognize that faith and obedience are inseparable. You can't have faith without obedience you can't have faith without some demonstration of that faith in your actions you can't separate them into two distinct things the reason why I take offense at the idea that faith can be boiled down to mere mental assent alone is because it separates faith from obedience you can't do that scripturally you can't divide the two You can't get faith that occurs in my mind Well, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he's my Savior that doesn't show up in my life. There's no such thing. To have faith is to obey. And to obey is to have faith. He who believes obeys. And he who obeys believes. The two are completely inseparable. Now let me see if I can put it in a way that everybody can grasp it. If you buy a pack of cigarettes, I never bought a pack in my life. But I know that there is a Surgeon General's warning somewhere on that package that tells you if you smoke those things, they're likely to kill you. Amen? You can't tell me that you believe the warning if you're smoking the cigarettes. You can't tell me that you believe that smoking a cigarette will kill you if you keep on smoking them. If you continue to smoke them, 
then it is evident that you don't believe the Surgeon General's warning that's printed on the side of the package, those things are going to kill you. Because if you really believed, you've ever stood in a cancer ward and watched a man or woman die of lung cancer, and you really believed that was going to happen to you, you'd never smoke another one. Now, this isn't, this isn't pastor and Bible and standards. This is just good old plain common sense. If you believed that that was going to put you in your grave, if you believed you were going to be in an, emer an intensive care unit somewhere with COPD and unable to, believe, unable to breathe and unable to... Uh, we, we baptized a man one time, 70-something years old, dying from the effects of, of lung cancer. Had to carry an oxygen bottle into the baptistry tank. Put him down in the water in the name of Jesus Christ. I've seen what lung cancer does. I've seen the effects. You can't tell me you believe that that's going to happen to you if you continue in that direction. See, somehow you've convinced yourself that it won't happen to you. You're, you're the one in a million that gets away with it, that gets off scot-free. Belief is inseparably linked to obedience it's inseparably linked to action if I really believe that it's going to kill me then I'm not going to do it amen so when the Genesis account tells us that God kept his promise to Abraham on the basis of Abraham's obedience that's not in disagreement with Paul in Romans who tells us that God kept his promise to Abraham on the basis of Abraham's faith. Because faith and obedience are inseparable. You can't divide them. By honoring Abraham's obedience, God honored his faith. Because faith and obedience are inseparably linked, you can't drive a wedge between the passages and say, well, that, that somehow there's a contradiction. You, you, we, I don't have the time this morning. We jump right into the New Testament and we go to James and we start talking about Paul's faith and James's works. Because the same crowd that believes that there's a difference between faith and obedience has a problem with reconciling the book of James to the book of Romans because one teaches you you're not saved by works and the other teaches you can't be saved without works. You can't separate obedience from faith. When you do, you do irreparable harm to the word of God. To believe is to obey. Abraham didn't earn God's blessings. His obedience didn't make him good enough to receive God's blessings. God didn't owe him anything. But that doesn't mean that the works in Abraham's life were not an outgrowth of his faith. Abraham believed, therefore he obeyed. And his faith was an obedient, persistent, continual faith. Verses 23 and 24 taken together says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, for us also to whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, it was not written for his sake alone, but it was also written 
for us. What was imputed to him is going to be imputed to us if we believe. Now, these verses apply Abraham's faith to us. The Bible did not record Abraham's justification by faith in Abraham's in Genesis 15 and 6 for his sake alone. It recorded it for our sake also. Abraham's experience teaches us that we too can receive justification by our faith. We too can be justified, we can be saved, we can be made righteous by our faith. The latter portion of verse 24 describes how we can have righteousness imputed to us by our faith. If we believe on him who raised Jesus from the dead, then we too can have righteousness imputed to us. We've got to believe just like Abraham believed. We must believe in the same God that Abraham believed in. We must believe, like Abraham did, that he is a God that can bring life from death. You see, this last clause here connects us back to verse 17. Amen. Back in verse 17, the basis of Abraham's faith was that God quickens the dead. This, Paul says, is also the basis of our faith. We must believe that by the power of God, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That belief is absolutely essential to our salvation. You can't truly believe in the power of God and deny the resurrection. Every year at Easter time, I'm amazed by the number of articles that appear in the periodicals, the publications, Time Magazine, Newsweek, whatever periodical publication you read that are written by supposedly religious men, doctors of divinity, all kinds of titles, that question the veracity, the truthfulness of the resurrection account. Let me tell you something real plain. Jesus Christ died for my sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And he borrowed that tomb because he's the only man that ever lived that could borrow a tomb. Because on the third day, he was raised to life again from the dead. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's not open for debate. I'm not willing to budge one inch from that truth because it is the foundation of my faith. I believe, just like Abraham believed, just like Paul believed, that God is able to raise the dead. I believe it. And likewise, we've got to believe that God knows the future. Amen? That he can speak of things that are not as though they were. We must believe on the sheer evidence of a promise alone that God can and one day will catch us away to live with him forevermore. Our hope is heaven. And that promise exists only in the word of God. We've never seen it. There is no evidence of it. Our minds can't even conceive it. The half has never yet been told. But God said, one of these days... The trump of God is going to sound. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the skies. There's coming a day. There's coming an hour. But until that day, 
Until that hour, my faith has to believe in a God who speaks of things that are not as though they were. Some will try to tell you this present world is all that there is to life. But my friend, I believe in heaven. And that belief is not open for debate. I believe as Abraham did. I believe as Paul did in a God who speaks of things that are not as though they were because he knows the end from the beginning. He said, in my father's house are many mansions, and if it were not told, so I would have told you. I believe it because he said it, even though I haven't seen it. Amen? So verse 25 says, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again, for our justification. Verse 25 describes the foundation of justification by faith. God robed himself in flesh and God became a man. The Spirit of God handed over that man, Christ Jesus, to be sacrificed because of our sins. Our sins made his death necessary. In order to forgive us our sins, Jesus Christ had to die. But as the Spirit of God surrendered him for that death, the Spirit of God also raised him from the death. Paul says he was raised again for our justification. In order to justify us, Jesus Christ had to be resurrected. That's why the fundamental belief that Jesus was raised from the dead is not open for debate. He was raised because of our justification. He was raised from the dead because our salvation depends on his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is what empowers our salvation. It is essential to our justification. Jesus died on the cross for our sins but that death is not the end of the story his resurrection was essential for our salvation he died he was buried and he rose again on the third day that's the gospel it takes the whole thing listen put first corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 4 first corinthians chapter 15 i'm gonna start in verse 1 it says moreover brethren I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. So what's he, could he, what's he declaring? Paul's declaring the gospel. That's what it says. I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received. How? Here's the gospel. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in that chapter to make the argument that the resurrection is essential to our salvation. He says in verse 14 that if Christ was not resurrected, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is also in vain. Now that's important. 
if you're justified by your faith, then the resurrection is absolutely essential to your justification. The death of Jesus, watch this, the death of Jesus is inseparably linked to his resurrection. It takes both. It takes the whole event from the cross to the empty tomb to the resurrection. All of it is united together and all of it is essential for your justification. It's not enough just that Jesus died. It's not enough just that he was buried in a borrowed tomb. It is essential, Paul says, for our justification that Jesus was raised from the dead. Without his resurrection, our faith is in vain and we have no justification. The message that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts the second chapter tells us how that we relate to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was resurrected on the third day for our justification. How do we appropriate that into our lives? Peter said you must repent. You've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repentance is a type of death. It identifies us with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Baptism is a type of burial. And when we are baptized in his name, we are buried with him. Likewise, the Holy Ghost is the resurrecting spirit of God. And when we're filled with that spirit, we receive in these mortal bodies the resurrection and life. So first of all, let me say, as Paul has already said, it takes the whole thing. It takes all three. The final step is as important as the first step. It wasn't enough just that Jesus died. He had to be resurrected. It isn't enough just that you repent or just that you are baptized. You must be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Else, to put it in Paul's words, your faith is in vain. You must receive the whole, the whole plan, the whole event. He was raised for our justification. Likewise, our justification relies on that resurrecting spirit. You must be filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, the way that Paul views our salvation is important to us. In his mind, the death of Jesus... And the burial of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus are inseparable. They represent a single whole that makes justification available to us. You can't separate the parts and maintain the integrity of the whole. He died on one day. He was buried that evening. Three days later, he came forth out of the grave. You can't subdivide the thing without without breaking up the very purpose for which it came into being. The whole process is required or there's no salvation. He was resurrected for our justification. Justification requires the whole thing. We recognize faith is essential to salvation. 
We recognize that faith is the initial step towards God. Hebrews 11 and 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. If you're going to come to God, you've got to acknowledge that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. But faith requires obedience to the Word of God. And the instructions of Peter on the day of Pentecost demand that we identify with Jesus Christ. We identify with his death, with his burial, and with his resurrection. Our faith has to act. Our faith requires obedience. So in obedience, we repent of our sins. In obedience, we're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And in obedience, we submit to the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Our justification requires it. Just like justification required the whole process of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Justification requires the whole process of repentance, baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. It takes the whole to be justified. Just like Abraham, our justification hinges on our faith. And our faith has to be obedient to the word of God we're not earning God's promises whenever we obey the plan of salvation we're not earning God's promises whenever we obey the word of God we're demonstrating our faith in our obedience just like Abraham did that's the point of Paul if you believe it's not if you believe you'll be saved like Abraham was it's if you believe like Abraham believed you'll be saved like Abraham was. And Abraham's belief was a belief that yielded obedience. Amen? So God justifies us through our faith when we repent of our sins. We're baptized in his name. We receive the infilling of the Holy Ghost. We're justified through our faith. Amen? Would you stand with me? God made Abraham a promise. And Abraham believed in that promise in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. His faith compelled him to obey God and to go wherever God told him to go and to do whatever God told him to do. I want you to know this morning that God has promised you and me salvation from our sins. He's promised us an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled in heaven. And all you have to do is believe him and take him at his word. That belief will require of you obedience to the word of God. God said to Abraham, come out of Ur. And Abraham gathered together his family and he left Ur. God calls to the sinner come out of the world and the sinner answers the call of God with faithful obedience obedience that demonstrates that he believes what God said when he falls at an altar of repentance repentance doesn't just mean to say I'm sorry repentance means to change your direction that's what the Greek word means it means an about face a total change of direction God said, come out from among them. Repentance says, I want to change the way I'm going. I want to come out. 
when we obey just as Abraham obeyed, when we demonstrate the faith that Abraham had, it shows up in our lives and the way we live. I believe this morning that God's still calling people just like he called Abraham. I believe he's still calling people to come out. I believe he's still calling people to distinguish and separate themselves from this world. I believe he's still calling to his church. The faith of Abraham wasn't a faith that, and we've said this over and over again, but it wasn't finished in Genesis 15. But it continued on and on and on and on. And over and over and over again, Abraham had to believe God and obey God. And I believe that there are people in this house today and in all stages of your walk with God that some may be new Christians, some have maybe walked with him for years and years and years and years. But whoever you are and wherever you are, I still believe God's calling you to obedience. I still believe he's calling you to come a little closer. 